Um, probably. Luckily, they turned me off over there. Hey, in our journey reading tonight, if you will, turn to Galatians chapter 4. Um, again, there's a few days left to continue to sing. A week from tonight, we will be gathering here. Hopefully, there's some more people that are coming for Christmas Eve service. We will be starting at 6 o'clock that evening, so invite your friends and family to come and join us. We should be done at about 7, 7.15, somewhere around there, so you have plenty of time to go back with your family, but uh, just invite some friends to come out and be, be with us a week from tonight. And so Galatians chapter 4, the first seven verses. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then heirs of God through Christ. Father, thank you so much, Lord. Even as we're singing through all these songs, Lord God, just praising and glorifying and honoring you, Father, for sending your Son. The fact that we could glorify him. The fact that we can honor him. And thank you, Lord God, for allowing us to receive him, to give us that free gift of salvation, Lord God. And what's more, Lord God, you've adopted us into your family. Even as we read this just a while ago, Lord God, you've adopted us so that we can be sons and heirs with Christ. And we're so grateful for that. Lord, bless you. Thank you, Lord. As we look to you, even tonight, Lord God, for you to lead us and guide us in your word. And we thank you for your promises. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, another busy time of the year as we are heading into a week of uh, busyness for a lot. I know a lot of you guys who work for Snowline School District, um, or if you have kids in Snowline, tomorrow will be their last day, and they're off for the next couple weeks, and you might be off as well, and many of you are already uh, thinking, oh, the last-minute things that need to be done, understandable, but if you can, as much as is within you, rest. Rest. Don't forget to give Jesus the glory. To look to God. To remember the reason for what this season is all about. Because honestly, guys, we can get so caught up in so many things. And then it becomes about things and even traditions. And we forget about Jesus and we forget about people. And people you know, are important, and we're going to be around a lot of people. This Saturday, we have our Flora's Christmas, and I love it. We're going to have a house full. We're going to have a lot of our family over, but I just want to be a blessing to them. I want to be able to open up our home <clears throat> and be a light to them and share the gospel with them, with the little kids, especially, as we uh, give out gifts and stuff like that. And so, again, just be praying for one another that we would be that light in this season, okay? So if you will, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 4 this evening, as we will endeavor to cover two whole chapters. I am very confident that we can do that tonight. I know I've done that in the past, and I think that we can truly do it again. The first chapter, uh, chapter 4, is not as long and neither is the second one, so um, I think we can get through with this. So, verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Hold on. Hey, Daniel, do me a favor. On my desk, there's a yellow sheet of paper, and it has all these names on there. There's a lot of names tonight, so I tried to write them down, and it's like, ah, they're not here. But I will give it the old college try right now, okay, before he gets here. It says, uh, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops, and the name of one was Baadah. The name of the one was Baadah, and the name of the other was Rechab, the son of Rimna, the Beerothite. Um, of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth uh, also was a part of Benjamin because the Beerothites fled to Gitamin and have been sojourners until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame by his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mophibosheth. Then the sons of Rimmon, the Beerothite, Re- Rechab and Beana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishboseth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And Rechab and Beana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, He was lying on his bed, in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plains. Now, when the son of Saul heard that Abner had died, Abner was Saul's cousin. King Saul's cousin, if you remember a while back. I shared that with you. And when Saul had been killed in battle, he took Saul's son, Isboseth, and made him king. All the while knowing and understanding for the most part, and I say he truly understood this, but I want to almost give him the benefit of the doubt, but I don't. I truly believe that he knew that David was the one that was supposed to be set up as king. And I was sharing with you guys about this man that it, it, it seems that he just wanted, he wanted this power grab. He wanted to, to continue to have this power. And in order to have this power, instead of going and, 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 and understanding that David was the one that was supposed to be made king... Instead of telling Ishboseth, Ishboseth, it's never going to happen. You know that, I know that. Let's just go get along with David. Let's just go humble ourselves with David. And so, all this power grab led to this man most more than likely being older than Ishboseth, being the cousin of his father, closer to Saul's age. This man just needed someone to be a puppet for him. And he would be the one that was pulling the strings. Again, all the while understanding, because of what we saw even last week, as he went and talked to the people of Israel, the elders, he knew what God had done and said about David. Last week we saw that this man Abner had gone and 
taken one of King Saul's concubines. Now, it could have been pure love, possibly, maybe. There was love, there was chemistry between the two, maybe. But more than likely, he just kind of wanted to show just how much power he had, how much power he wielded, how much power he could enforce on this kingdom. After all, he was the one that was pulling the strings. And after being called out on taking this concubine, Abner decided to defect, to go over to the other side, and finally make David king the way he should have in the beginning. Because he knew this all along, that David should be the king. Abner knew exactly, I believe, he knew exactly what he was doing. And there was something sinister, ominous, even creepy about him. You see, as I've looked through, throughout my life as a Christian and studied this story, I've never really trusted Abner. I don't know why, <laughs> even though David thought the world of him, as we saw last week, he just seemed to be like a self-seeking man and only looking out for himself. And as I was thinking about Abner, just had him on my mind, I probably thought, I, well, I thought he, he was probably short, chubby, balding, with beady eyes. And you can't trust a man like that. And I'm just so glad I don't have the beady eyes. But I just thought, this guy is a sneak, man. He, he is someone who who knows what he is doing. And guys, you know, there's people like that in our lives, and there's people like that even in this room. I'm sure that, that, that they know exactly what they're doing, but they are self-seeking. Oftentimes, it gets us so in trouble because, again, we are the ones that want to control everything that goes on. We want to be the ones that pull the strings. All we need is puppets in our lives. And it happens even within the church and within Christianity. And it's hard because you know, most of you, that, that have people like that in your lives or if you have been that in people's lives and you've been walking with the Lord, you know that the Lord has been trying to deal with you on these kinds of issues, but you are so self-seeking. And you, you have this... This thing about being a control freak. You have to have everything the way you want it. And Abner need, just seemed to be that kind of guy. And when he didn't get what he wanted, he turned on the people that he was supposed to be serving. And he even, didn't even seem to think twice about it. He was just looking for the opportunity. So now that Abner is dead... One would think that Ishbosheth would now come into his own. He has been a king for a little while now. He had been propped up to be a king. You would think that now he would take his rightful place. The one that was pulling the strings is now dead. He is gone. And now Ishbosheth could probably rule the way he knew he should be ruling. But instead, it says that he lost heart. He lost heart, which means that his courage failed. One translation says he lost all courage. But I like the way the King James puts that portion. It says his hands were feeble. And isn't that just like a, pulp, a puppet? When he has no one to pull his strings, all of a sudden it's just like, boom. He loses hope, he loses ability, he loses the wherewithal to, to rule a kingdom that somebody else had basically been ruling and was using him as the front man to, to rule and reign. And when that guy dies, he loses hope. And he's just like, there's nothing else he can do because he doesn't know how to rule. All this time, he had been placed in a position that he was not called to possess. 
And oftentimes people push their way into becoming something that God has never called them to. See, Isboseth was not on the battlefield when his brothers were killed, when his dad was killed. Why? More than likely, he just wasn't a good warrior. He probably was good at something else, but he wasn't a good warrior. And, it, it, and he wasn't a good king. He, he knew in his heart, because of his dad, because of Jonathan, he knew in his heart that he was not called to be king. And yet, because Abner, his, his dad's cousin, says, no, we're going to make you the king. And when the, the, the guy that's pulling the, the strings is gone, he loses heart. He lost all courage if he had any courage. And it's almost like he's realizing he is not good at this. And instead of understanding when all of this was coming down that, that Abner was now defecting that maybe he should have, instead of gone into this depression or this, this whatever he was feeling, he should have humbled himself and, and sent men to David and say, how can we join this together? But it also says in verse 1 that all Israel was troubled. All Israel was troubled. The common people of Israel probably for the most part didn't know all the dealings that Abner had made with David. You see, Abner had defected and he'd gone, and we saw that in the last chapter, he started making these deals with David, and David was saying, okay, we're on board, everything's happening. But the rest of Israel, maybe some of the military, maybe some of the leaders knew what was happening because he was talking to them. But for the whole, as a country, as a kingdom, it says that they... They, they, they were troubled. All of Israel was troubled. It means that they were dismayed, alarmed. They had become paralyzed with fear. Why? Because the guy that they thought was leading was not going to be able to lead them. They were, they were like sheep without a shepherd. <laughs> they were lost. They were vulnerable. Abner, if they had heard that he had died already, they knew that he probably defected he was gone. Now the king, the one that was being propped up, he is now dismayed and he is losing heart. And so all of a sudden, these people are just worried. The people knew what they had in a king. And that was bad enough. <laughs> that they knew that he was not the one that, uh, that was supposed to lead them. And at least... Abner, at least he knew what, was what he was doing, and he could maintain this kingdom. But it is really sad that when the puppeteer can no longer pull the strings, the people become paralyzed. It's a dangerous place to be. When the people begin to lose hope in their leadership, <laughs> and they're going, man, these people are not capable <laughs> They, they don't know what they're doing themselves. They're in over their heads, it seems like. Because they're not taking care of business. And all of a sudden, people can become so discouraged, dismayed, alarmed. And there's this fear of the unknown because they don't know what could happen to them because they're vulnerable. And so that's the state of the northern kingdom right now. Isposeth is, is not coming out. He's in his room. He's staying there. And it says that from verses 2 to verse 7, that, that, that Saul's son, and, I, and, and it's almost sad that they, never, they don't call him Isboseth twice here. They just call him Saul's son. He had two men who were captains. And Baana and Rechab here, they decide that they have to take care of business. Now, we could say or speculate that these two men knew what Abner had set in place. It's quite possible that because they were part of the military, that they knew that there was some dealings going on, and, and maybe, just maybe, they felt they had to set things in motion. They had to speed up the process. They had to get the ball rolling and, 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 and finally join this, this kingdom together. 
Now, verse 4 kind of gives us a little parenthesis about Mephibosheth, which was Jonathan's son. And it just kind of gives us a little, a little snippet, a little parenthesis. But he has nothing to do with this picture right now. He will come into play in chapter 9. Just to give you a heads up on that. But these two gentlemen, or these two men, they decide that, that they have to take care of business. And I don't think it was out of the ordinary for the people uh, to, to see these guys come in and, and just kind of go through the house. I don't think that was out of the ordinary. They were two captains, and they had access to the, to the king's house. And it says that they were coming in to get wheat, or as though they, they were getting wheat and probably more for their troops. And so nobody was going to stop them. But you see, these guys were there to take advantage of the, of the position they were in. in. Now, I, I don't think it's out of the ordinary for people, even well-meaning people, to take, take things upon themselves. When they see a situation that's happening, not just in this story, but in our lives, When we see something that should be happening and it hasn't happened, I don't think it's out of the ordinary for some of us to try and set things in motion. To try to speed things up. To get the ball rolling. It's almost like we know that we, we can see the writing on the wall it should happen and we're thinking, Lord, I think you're just taking a little too long and I think it's time for me to act. All the while, you think, well, what I'm doing is not justifiably right, but the, 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 the end will justify the means, right? <laughs> if I get it going, even if I have to do, even though if I have this little check in my heart that I shouldn't do something, but if I do it, I know that at the end, everybody will go, yes, perfect. And I think that's a danger because we see these two men, whether they knew what was going on or not, if they knew what was going on and decided, well, let's just speed the things up here, you know? Let's, let's just get this thing going. And thinking, we're going to be heroes because of all of this stuff. Now, it could be that Ishbosheth just had a habit of taking a nap during his lunch break. I know I have that habit. Um, if I could steal 30, 30 minutes, I will. And it's quite possible that, that, that he was just taking a nap during lunch. But it's also possible that he was so depressed that he had just lost all hope. He just could not get out of bed, unless he was a musician also. And, you know, musicians, they sleep, sleep in forever, possibly. But more than likely, because of the first verse, he had lost heart. It's quite possible that he, he just didn't know what to do. And laying in bed was the best thing he could do. These two men, they knew that there would not be a fight. Maybe they heard that he had been depressed and he had been just laying around and they thought it would be quick and easy by the time anybody figures out what's going on because he's in his room all day long we will be in and out and things will be done and we will be headed out from there. And these two men were up in Minanama uh, or whatever the place was at. It was up north by, by the brook uh, Jabok, uh, the river Jabok, on the other side of the Jordan, up by Gilead, where, where they had made their headquarters. And so it would be a three-day journey for those guys to come all the way down to Hebron. It was close to 80 miles that they would have to travel with this head in their, in their possession just so they can get to David. And so in verse 8, it says, And they brought the head of Ishboseth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishboseth the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. 
But David answered Rechab and Benina, his brother, the sons of these, this guy, said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. The one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house in his bed. Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool of Hebron, in Hebron. But they, <clears throat> but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. I don't know how you feel at times when, when you're reading through the Old Testament and you, you see stories like this. It could get pretty graphic and pretty gruesome. And I know that oftentimes, even, you know, especially in Sunday school, we want to clean it up. You know, I don't know how they do this story of the little kids, you know, paint the head cut off with blood dripping. You know, we, we just don't do that. We, we try to clean things up, you know. And, and, and that's understandable. Don't get me wrong. It, it's understandable. But guys, we read stuff like this through the Old Testament all the time. And I don't know if you've ever read through the Old Testament, but I encourage you to read it. It is not PG. It is really not PG. It, it is graphic. This is was, what was, was life. And it's interesting now because in this day and age, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't hear a lot about you know, people getting their heads cut off or their feet cut off or their hands cut off. But man, isn't it becoming more and more of a norm if you're a news junkie like I am? That people are, 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 you know, again, man, you could see it all. But this is what we have here. And it's quite possible that these two men never heard the story of what had happened to the guy who came and told David that he had killed Saul. But this is like a deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. If these two thought that they were indeed setting things in motion, if they thought that they were speeding up the process, that they were getting this ball rolling so that they can now be part of this kingdom, part of God's will, part of the, 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 the amazing things that were going to be happened, they were sadly mistaken. They had gone about it all the wrong way. You know, even if you think that you have to do something wrong to get the outcome that you think God wants, <laughs> stop. Just stop. Just, just, just stop. Don't, don't go that way because I think oftentimes, and I've had people tell me, why well, I have to do these things in order to get this outcome. And I just almost stand there going, you're kidding me. You're telling me that you thought you had to sin. You had to even a white little lie to get the process going or to get the outcome that you thought God wanted for you. But you see, God will never, ever say, hey, why don't you do something wrong? Why don't you sin against me? Because things got to get in motion and I can't come down there and take care of it. And I can guarantee you that these two thought that their motives, that, that this whole thing was, was pure, but it was, it was not. I believe that these guys thought, mm, we're going to be rewarded. Something, is good, something good is going to come out of this whole thing for us. I'm sure that David knew the state of Ishbosheth and of the kingdom. 
And David himself, being the king of Judah, having been anointed once again for the last seven and a half years, knowing what was happening, knowing that he was growing stronger and they were growing weaker, even before Abner had come and made these contacts with him, at any time David could have set things in motion. He could have got things going. He knew that God had called him to do it. But you see, David never did that. He knew that God had called them to it and he was going to wait on the Lord. Whereas these guys thought, well, I think if I get going here, if I do it, then God will honor this. Even if we have to kill an innocent man in his bed while he's taking a good little nap. You see, that was cold-blooded murder. Isposeth never even saw them coming. I don't even know if he would have put up a fight, but he had no chance whatsoever. And so this was purely wrong all the way around. And so David, as they come to him, thinking, you guys probably want the reward like this happened before. I understand this whole thing. He says, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, in his bed? Therefore, shall I not require his blood at your hand? And remove you from the earth. Can you imagine where their, where their heart went? Boom. Thinking, yikes, it's just not turning out the way it should. They, 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 they got busted right there. And David brought justice to the injustice that had been done to an innocent man. Chapter 5. Then all Israel, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, you are our bone and our flesh. Also at this time, when Saul, also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel. And be ruler over them, over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. With, with, with the assassination of Ishbosheth and the death or assassination of Abner, it left the 11 tribes of Israel without a king and without a leader to lead them. They, they, they were a sheep without a shepherd. But as we knew <laughs> that before Abner's de demise, he had already paved the way for David to become king over all of Israel. We, we, we learned that last week, that he had already set everything in motion for this to take place. And so the next step for the elders of Israel was to come to Hebron and make David their rightful king. Something that they had desired all along. You know, they, they said to him, Indeed, you are our bone and our flesh. Or we are your bone and your flesh. This house of Israel, this nation of Israel had been divided for so long. But it was never because of David's fault. David had done nothing to divide the kingdom. This house had been divided purely because of pride, because of disobedience, and because of fear. They had divided this whole kingdom. That which was supposed to be one had been separated. And many of the elders, I believe, that, that we see here, I, I, I believe that these elders were probably among those elders who wanted to be just like all the other nations. And they were all in it for, 
for Saul. Or maybe their family were, were. But when David came on the scene with these guys, when he was about 15 years old, when he came in and he killed Goliath and all of a sudden his name began to go out and people were singing about him. Remember that top tune back in the day? That oldie. Saul has killed his thousands, but David is 10,000 and people were always singing it. You see, there was something about David that they noticed even back then, because they tell him, man, man, when, when Saul was king over us, you were the one, though. You were the one that led Israel out and brought them in. You see, they had saw something quite different from the pride and disobedience and fear that was leading them. What they saw when David came on the scene was humility. What they saw in him was obedience. And what they saw in him was courage. That's who this man was here. That's why they were so confident in David. When he was leading them out, they knew that God would bless. When he was bringing them in, they knew that they had victory. That's the confidence that they had in David. And when David went on the run and he took 600 men with him or 300 and then it kind of grew to 600, I can imagine that most of Israel was just dreading the fact that they had to serve under this king and not that man over there. Because that man was the one that had truly a heart for the nation of Israel. This is what they needed over them. <laughs> you see, they wanted a king bad, and they took Saul, and he took second best. They wanted somebody to be out there for them, and he was empty. He became so prideful. He became so disobedient. And, he, and he, he did things out of fear. And David had proven himself in times past that he was a leader. You see, he was led by the Lord, not by his fear. He was led by the Lord and not by his disobedience. He was led by the Lord by his humility. You see, Saul was led by the pride, disobedience, and fear, and people knew that. There was so much insecurity within this man. And he didn't allow himself to humble himself to the Lord. I think when people get to that point, man, people, people around can notice the insecurities that are happening in somebody's life. And, and this man was leading them and now that the kingdom was about to be shifted over, I think they were all excited. See, Saul was never, never really a shepherd to Israel. He was more of a hireling for Israel. And that's what the people wanted at the time. And that's what they got from Saul. And they also got that from Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was not a shepherd to Israel, he was more of a hireling, he was a puppet. All, both of these men, I believe, were managed by the self-seeker, Abner. And so now the long-awaited king, the man after his own heart, God's own heart, would be anointed. Now, this would be the third time that David would be, be anointed. When he was 15 years old, when he was a shepherd boy, if you remember the story, when, when Samuel came on the scene and he, and he went to the house of Jesse and he says, you know, I've come to anoint. Bring the men before me. And they bring them in and it's like, David wasn't even a thought. <laughs> Do you have any more? Because God's going, not this one, not this one. They all look like Saul. <laughs> and finally, they bring David in and he says, he's the one. He's about 15 years old. 15 years old, this shepherd boy was about 15 years old. At this time, in chapter 5, he's about 37 years old right now. He got anointed at 15 years old. 20 years later, he's anointed king over all of Israel. Seven and a half years before that, he had been anointed king over Judah. 
So now this is the third time and the final time that he will be anointed. This shepherd boy would finally be the shepherd of God's people, Israel. David had that shepherd's heart. He always had that shepherd's heart. And it's interesting because the leaders of Israel were supposed to be shepherds, not hirelings, ever. Whether they were prophets or priests or kings even, they were supposed to be shepherds. They were to look out for the people of God. They were supposed to have a, a heart for the people because even the king was to serve God first and foremost and then serve the people. But things just got twisted. And that often happens in people's lives when they become powerful. All of a sudden, they think that, that, that they could rule over people. And it happens within the church all the time, and it breaks my heart. A pastor is supposed to be a shepherd, not a hireling. He's supposed to serve the people, teach the people, give the people something good to eat, prepare a good meal for them. Not to lord it over them. He is to know the state of his flock. And so is a leader of a nation. See, King David never thought that he had to set things in motion. He never thought that he had to speed things up. He knew that the anointing had come 21 years ago. And I'm sure there was times when he was going... Really, God, when is it going to happen? He went through his times, don't get me wrong. But he never forced the issue. He allowed God to do what he was going to do, and he waited on the Lord. And so in verse 6, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come up here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. <clears throat> Nevertheless, <clears throat> Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, now David said in that, on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they said, they say, the, li- the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David uh, built all around from the Milo uh, and inward. So David went on and became great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him at Jerusalem. Shemuah, Shubab, Nathan, Solomon, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphalet. Now you would think that David would have just picked some common names. 
Maybe just name them all after himself. David, David 1, David 2, David 3. Made it easier for those of us who would come later on, but not, not, that was not the case. But anyways, from verses 6 through about 10, we, we see that, that, uh, that David now wants to take over where the Jebusites are. Hebron is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem borders or it separates the southern kingdom from the northern kingdom. And it, was, it, it really belonged to neither one of the kingdoms. It was more of a, of a neutral city at the time. But it was perfect for, to be a capital for all the nation of Israel. The Jebusites were supposed to be conquered, but they were never conquered or driven, driven out in the days of Joshua. And so it became, by and large, a neutral city. But the people, the inhabitants, still live there, the Jebusites. They still live there. And by what we could tell, even by what they say here, they were very well protected. They were so well protected that when David decided to come against them, they said, man, even our lame and our blind will be able to defend them because we are like impenetrable. There is no way that anybody can really take us over. Now, David, David was born and he grew up in Bethlehem, which is only about five miles south of Jerusalem. And I can imagine being a young shepherd boy and taking his flock all around, that he would always look to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits at about 1,200 feet above sea level. So wherever you're coming from, from whatever direction, you always go up to Jerusalem. And it was very well fortified. There's three valleys on each side, on the east, on the south, and on the, the west. There's, there's these valleys that go around like this. And the only way that you could really come in is through the north. But they were well protected all the way around. And it's interesting because later on, David would write about Jerusalem many times in the book of Psalms. And in Psalm, Psalm 48, 1 through 4, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. Is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king? God is in her, her palace, who is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled and passed by together. He, he was talking about later on how all of this would happen. And he just, it just looked like, man, he just loved Jerusalem. In Psalm 50, verses 1 and 2, he says, The mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Oh, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. And these Jebusites who lived there in Jerusalem thought that their city could never be overtaken. That even their blind and their lame could defend it. Which made David a little angry and it became a proverb about how the lame and the, and the, and the blind could defend things. But he knew that the Lord had promised this particular land to Moses that Israel would conquer all the nations living in Canaan, including these Jebusites. And so by faith, he planned his attack because he knew God had given it to them. These guys had gotten away with it for hundreds of years, and now it was time. And he had promised any man who would be able to enter that city and conquer it and subdue it, that they would become the commander of the army. And he even told them how to do it because David knew that there was a water shaft that went in into the city. Now, if you ever get to go travel to Jerusalem, there's, there's in the older part, in the city of David on the southern, southern part, <clears throat> is where he built all of this. There's a tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's an amazing sight, man, to be able to go. And when you go down there to the brook, uh, the... the Kishon is, is the little brook or the little spring down there. That's where Solomon gets anointed. But when you go down there, you see the water shaft of, of where uh, these guys would have used to go up to the old city of Jerusalem, to the city of David. 
it's quite a feat. You could Google it also and look it up and, and see the Hezekiah, Hezekiah's tunnel and the water shaft. Now, it, it wasn't impossible to get through there, but it was very difficult. On some of the, the pictures that you could see, man, it shows you the direction that they would have gone. And again, you would have had to like, it wasn't for the claustrophobic, let's just say that. But they got in there. And it just so happened, and we know this from First uh, Chronicles, that, um, that David's nephew, Joab, he is the one that accepted this, the, this challenge, and he captured the city and became the captain of all the David's troops. And when, again, when it was excavated, they found this water shaft eventually. Now, when you go and look at where David was going to conquer the city of, of Jabez, or um, the Jebusites there, you could see that because of the, the valley that is around there, later on in the story with, with Bathsheba, how he could literally, where he built his, his house, he could look down at the houses below. It's interesting. But David occupied that mount and called, uh, called the southern part of it uh, the city of David. And in the following years, David and his successors would strengthen and fortify by building walls around the city of David. Now, the king of Tyre, Hiran, he, uh, <clears throat> he decided that uh, it would be a smart move to be on David's side. Now, I don't know if when he came to meet with David, he said, hey, man, if you need anything, just ask. And David said, I need a house. And you have cedar. And you have carpenters. And you have masons. Bring these brothers over so we can do all the work. So I don't know if that was the case or he just thought, hey, you're going to need a house and I'm going to help you establish your kingdom. And so this time frame is throughout many years, but it's just kind of giving us a glimpse of what would happen. And it says in verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him to be king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. You see, God used everything in David's life to bring him to this point. You know, we look at how people went about to do things, to speed things up, to set things in motion. And even though it was wrong, God used it. But David was not the one that did it. You see, when other people make mistakes, when other people, and even yourself and myself, when we speed things up, when we get in the way, God can always redeem those things. He will always use our failures. He never lets a good trial go by. <laughs> He will use it for His glory. He will use other people's mistakes, even our own mistakes, to, to eventually get His purpose across. But He didn't do it so much for David's sake. He did it for the people. And then it tells us that He took on more concubines and more wives. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you'd like. I want to read to you what God had said to the children of Israel as they were leaving the, the Egypt, as they were in the wilderness, that he prepared them for times like this. In chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, verse 14 to the end of the chapter, the Lord speaking to Moses, it says, when you come into the land which the Lord, your God, is giving you, and possesses and possesses it and dwelt dwells in it and says i will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me you shall surely set a king over you whom the lord your god chooses one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you you shall not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. 
neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be, when he sets, sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of the law of the, in the book, from the one before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn the fear of the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up, lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment of the Lord, uh, to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom and he and his children in the midst of Israel. Now, I, I don't quite understand or comprehend why David would continue to amass wives even though he had already amassed some. I don't quite get it. Knowing the law of Moses, knowing what the Lord required, it only brought more difficulties into his life. You know, and as we read through Deuteronomy, especially this portion, God says, man, this is why I'm doing this. This man, whoever is set over you, needs to have the fear of the Lord. He cannot build his own kingdom. He cannot amass wealth and, and, and all these things for himself because it will turn his heart to the side. He says he shall write the law in a book for himself and he shall read it every day so that he knows what God wants for him. And guys, even as I read things like this now as a pastor, it's like that is what I am supposed to be doing. The more so as Christians. God, even though he's talking about kings, he talks to us. We are to be in his word daily so we know what he wants for us. So that we can do what he has told us to do in his word. I, I find it fascinating that most of us who know the word of God, we're saying, oh yes, man, we're such sticklers on certain things, but other things we let slide. And I look at this in David's life. It's like, David, you were supposed to be a good king and you were supposed to adhere to all the rules and all the laws of the Lord. Why would you amass more and more wives into your life? It's hard for me to comprehend because we know, and I shared with you last week, that even throughout his family, there would be so much disaster. But even though God, even though all of this happened and he did this, God would somehow use all of this for his purpose through all these people, all these kids, especially Solomon. He would use Solomon to one day bring the line of the Messiah. Through Bathsheba, through an adulterous affair. See, we look at that as like, all of it is wrong. And yet God uses a lot of these things throughout history. In verse 17, it says, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed King David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines uh, also went and de deployed themselves in the valley of Rephamim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, and I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hands into your hand. So David went to uh, Baal, uh, Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breaking through of water. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal Perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up again, once again, and deployed themselves in the valley 
of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up, but circle around behind them, and come up upon upon them in the front of the mulberry tree. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the mulberry tree, then you shall advance quickly for the Lord, for then the Lord will go before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezor. You know, as I was looking at this last part, I just thought it was fascinating that David had been king in in Judah for seven and a half years and he never battled the Philistines. And they probably thought, well, he's still at odds with the rest of Israel. And they probably left him alone. But as soon as they knew that he had been anointed king over all of Israel, it says they went out to search for David. And I wonder if the king that he had been under (laughs) from the Philistines was still in charge and now thinking, David, I thought you were on my side at one point. And when you became king, when Saul died and and you were still away from the kingdom, I thought, man, you're still on my side. But now you're all in. And I thought, you know, isn't that interesting? When we decide we want to follow the Lord, And we're totally not all in, but we're in. Satan will leave us alone oftentimes. But all of a sudden, when you become all in, (laughs) like David now, he, he is all in. He is the king over all of Israel. It says that the enemy came after him. He went searching after him. He came against them. And I thought, man, isn't that the case? When we decide, man, we are all in for the Lord. That all of a sudden, the enemy just comes in like a flood. And it's interesting because David inquires of the Lord. He probably used the prophet or the priest to inquire of the Lord. And he says, shall I go or will you deliver me into their, into, uh, deliver them into my hand? And I love the fact that the Lord says, I will doubtless, without doubt, deliver the Philistines into your hand. You will have victory. You will have victory, no matter how big they are. No matter how they come against you, you will have victory. When, when the nation of Israel, when all these guys finally came and, and they decided, okay, David becomes our king, all, all the people that were from the north and the south, everybody that gathered together, there was over 300, like 380,000 men that joined forces with David. So now he had a huge army. He was all in and he had so many to, to protect him, but the Lord was the one that was going to protect them all. As, they, as he sought the Lord, the Lord was going to be with him. And that, that word, Be'el, Perizim, uh, it means the Lord of the breaches, or, or that, that the master of the, of the breaches, it's like the Lord just opened up the floodgates for them. He, he, he breached these, these levees, basically, and he just came in like a flood and took over the and fought against the Philistines. And when the Philistines thought, well, we'll regroup and we'll come back, he says, Lord, shall we do the same thing? He said, no, do it this way. And I love the fact that the Lord often changes things up because he doesn't want us to, to, to capitalize it or, or patent this certain way. He always does it this way. He says, shall we go up again? He says, no, do it this way. Circle around. And when you hear the sound on top of the mulberry tree, and I'm thinking, what was that sound? What was it? Was it the wind rustling? Was it, was it an angel sitting up there? What was it? But whatever the, the sound was, he says, when you hear the sound, in verse 24, go in quickly, advance quickly, and then you know that the Lord will go before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. Once again, man, we just get a story here of how God even uses things that weren't according to his will to get his purpose accomplished. The way Ishbosheth was murdered, the way these guys came about 
to come and tell David, this is, this is what we've done. And David taking care of injustices. David having to take over all of Israel, as I was thinking about this. I thought, you know, David is no amateur here. He's been on the run. He's been a man of war since he was about 15 years old. He, he, he has led this, this group of people in the wilderness as they were on the run. He had been the, 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 the king over Judah. Now he becomes king over all of it. And I'm thinking, man, the responsibility that came with all of that. And because of all the stuff that he will have to deal with, what he's already dealt with, I thought, it's not as lucrative as he thought it would be. <laughs> there was a lot of issues that came his way. But I love the fact that he teaches us here that he sought the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. And guys, it is so important for us to inquire of the Lord. I was sitting with, with a couple this afternoon and you know, they're going through life and asking them, hey, how, how, how's your reading? <laughs> guy says, well, if, uh, if you don't count church, is that what you're getting at? It's like, yeah, I'm not counting church. He goes, ah, oh, yeah, maybe once a week, maybe. And at that, there's your problem, man. How do you know what God wants for you if you're not even inquiring of the Lord on a daily basis? It is so important for us to inquire of the Lord so that we can get our directions, our marching orders from Him. Amen? Let's pray. Let's stand as we uh, sing this last song. Father, thank you so much for this time, Lord. Thank you for just showing us once again, Lord God, your faithfulness to David. Lord, after all these years, Lord, he finally became the king over all of Israel. Lord, I thank you for his patience that you show us through that. I thank you, Lord God, that his desire was to wait on you and not hurry things up, Lord. I thank you, Lord God, that, God, you, you used him as an example in our lives, Lord God. Lord, that even though he sinned at times, Lord, you still used him. And I just thank you for that. Lord, go before us right now, Lord. Help us to, to acknowledge you in all our ways so that you can direct our path, Lord. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I don't know what you're